This is the University of Applied Research and Development's Emergency Response and Risk Management video and podcast. You'll meet world-class leading professionals who share their wisdom, careers, and experiences. Join us on YouTube and all quality podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, and Radio Public. Welcome, everybody, to the University of Applied Research and Development's Emergency Response and Risk Management Podcast. I'm delighted that I have Aaron Signorelli with us. He's an emergency preparedness specialist at Munro County. Aaron, good morning. Good morning, Craig. How are you? Fantastic to be with you. Thanks for giving us the time today. Anytime. Aaron, I'd love for you to tell us what you do as an emergency preparedness specialist in your role. Well, the emergency preparedness specialist role comes with a lot of hats, a lot of different responsibilities. So for the most part on a blue sky day, we like to say, when there's no emergencies, nothing going on, I do a lot of trainings. I run a lot of exercises, full scale exercises for all the different municipalities in our county. I'm at the county level. So we work with all the towns to help update their emergency plans we run drills for our international airport. We do disease control drills. We have a nuclear, uh, a nuclear power plant nearby, so we do a lot of radiation detection and decontamination drills as well. And uh, we run a lot of points of dispensing, which are uh, pods to be able to distribute medication to up to 750,000 people within a 48 hour period. So that's one of the main things I'm invested in. And I wear a few different hats. Again, I said that I am the Medical Reserve Corps coordinator, which is basically a team of medical and non-medical people that volunteer to help in times of crisis. I'm the access and functional needs coordinator. So I, I help, I, uh, I help advocate for people with access and functional needs and different disabilities, attend their meetings and help to include them in emergency plans. That's one of the areas that I feel very strongly uh, drawn to because that's such a gap in emergency preparedness. And then I also uh, do a few different, few different roles as necessary. And would you like me to talk about the emergency roles that I'm currently doing in uh, COVID response? Love you too. That'd be perfect. All right. So in an actual emergency response, all bets are off. Everybody will wear different hats no matter what, what uh, branch or department you're in. So my team in emergency preparedness, you'd think that preparedness just prepares the plans, gets everything ready, trains people, and then hands it off to operations so they can respond. That is not how it works. The people that prepare those plans and actually write them and we know them almost by heart, those are the ones that they look to to run everything. <laughs> you have uh, emergency management and responders that obviously are great in their roles and they know how to, to respond to an incident. However, how many people actually dust off those, those plans and really dive into them really in depth 
it's really us, the preparedness specialists that understand how things should work. And if we're, if we're training everybody, we again, just end up knowing how to do it in a real time response. So our office only actually has four people that in that cover emergency preparedness for our county. And we all split off into different sections. So we have one that went into the uh, section chief for operations, one that went into planning, one that went to logistics. And myself, I'm in all external collaboration, uh, all training, and I have a just-in-time, or not a just-in-time training, a uh, catch-all task force, which is basically, that came from my military experience of we always needed a QRF or quick reaction force. Anytime you need something done right now, you don't have people to do it or time to wait. You need to be able to just grab from a group of people and go. So the catch-all task force was designed to be that where we had volunteers trained up in a variety of areas. They helped doing building health screening, taking people's temperatures, monitoring them for any sort of symptoms and that's kind of their staging area they only really need one or two people there but i have like six to eight staged at any time so anyone in the building can just walk down there grab one and say hey i need you for a few hours or hey i need you for the rest of the day or even the week so that that helps with the staffing issue on a short term and then we also have permanent position filled through planning and staffing with external collaboration, which is my main responsibility, I reach out to a lot of different groups and organizations and kind of maintain all of the resources that we have offered to us, whether donations, volunteers that are coming in. I've actually been able to get 600 and 650 volunteers since the start of this wow. to help us with our response. I've designed the training for and managed the building health screening redesign the process for isolation and quarantine field teams uh, was able to help with a be basically a, a project manager for a an application to track patients in a phone app so anybody that has a smartphone is able to get into this app put in their temperature put in their symptoms and we can track all of their information through that to reduce the amount of calling we have to do on a day-to-day -day basis. It also helps us to be able to video monitor through them. And I did some of the, the customization in it to trigger when we need to just get a text message or email, depending on a few different variables to say, I really need to look at this person. I'm in charge of all the training for all the different groups. So I just started a whole new program to train contact tracing in our, in our area. And we've already gotten a little over a hundred people trained to be able to do this whole new remote platform that we, uh, that, that we designed. And that's going to be able to help with that whole response. So I know I'm kind of jumping all around the place, but uh, there, there's a lot to do 16 hour days, 15 hour days. And, as much as you think that you finally got a handle of one thing, that's when everything's gonna change. You're gonna get pulled from that project and go to a completely new one. New York State is gonna give you a different uh, set of regulations and guidance. 
CDC comes out with new information on a day-to-day -day basis, we literally have changed our entire protocol and our systems more times than I can actually count. Every day it changes. That's really challenging, isn't it? Because you're managing so many moving parts and yet you do have this responsibility to follow guidelines from, from the state and but respond to the individual needs person by person, such as with your phone app diagnosing people. That seems very challenging, a lot of balls in the air. I, I haven't heard anyone speak about uh, functional assistance or helping people with disabilities. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, so I actually realized that that was a, a huge gap when I stepped into this role as emergency preparedness coordinator or specialist, sorry, emergency preparedness specialist. And uh, as the access and functional needs coordinator, I went to a few different meetings and met with uh, the, the uh, CDR, Center for Disability Rights. And they started expressing some of their different needs. And I just really took heart into that and realized that if you think that people aren't prepared on a day-to-day -day basis. Just imagine if you didn't have the mobility to get from one place to another. If you couldn't just, you know, you see that flood coming or something, you can't just jump out and run out and get into any vehicle. You have to have a specific vehicle. You have to have specific transportation. Even emergency messaging, a huge impact. We have a, one of the highest deaf populations in all of the uh, nation because we have the National Technical Institute for the Deaf here at, uh, at Rochester Institute of Technology. So we have a lot of people who are deaf and if you don't have an interpreter on screen, they have to rely on those closed captioning. If, you've, if you wanna feel a little bit what it's like to have a panic, turn on the closed captioning and hit mute on all your programs, all your live TV, and all of your emergency broadcast and see how accurate they are because they are not that accurate. Imagine also if you don't, you see there's an emergency broadcast and then there's no, there's no captions or there's no person signing on stage. So you have no idea what's going on other than something bad's happening. That's, that's really terrifying. And we realized that trying to ask the, the county every time to make sure that there was an interpreter, for most people, if they don't have an advocate, they don't think about it. Because if you don't have that sort of disability, if you don't live with somebody that needs this assistance, you don't really think about it. And we have a huge population that needs this kind of care, whether it's, again, transportation or language, whatever barrier, that they may have or specific need, they end up getting left in these emergencies. And when you see stories about like Hurricane Katrina where people were left in a nursing home and just everything flooded and they're, they're sitting there waist deep in water, or you hear these stories about uh, people that are in their power wheelchair and the power goes out, they can't charge their wheelchair, they can't get out they try calling law enforcement. They're told law enforcement will come get them and then nobody ends up showing up because, and not, not to say that law enforcement do, do their job, an emergency that big, you tax all of those responders so much that 
Mm. They're responding to every other aspect and trying to save as many lives as possible. And they just might not get there. And that, that's a portion where it just really hit me. You know what? Uh, no one, uh, for some reasons, people might not be coming. And in Puerto Rico, when the hurricanes hit and, and all that flooding went on, no one was able to get there. For for months, people were still living without power, without supplies, without food. And there were still people, mostly with disabilities, that they couldn't get anywhere. They had no support. And these are areas where I really started to focus in on. And I created a project through uh, NACHO, which is the National Association of City and County Health Officials, and was awarded a $12,500 project to start creating an accessible preparedness project, which brought emergency preparedness to accessible uh, people that needed access and functional needs and people who had, uh, dif sorry, people that had different disabilities. So trying to get that project up and running was really difficult because when you start thinking of working with government to try to get a project moving, everything's pretty slow. All the funding, all the budgeting takes a lot of time. And then when you try to say, well, these people may or may not need transportation, you're, you're talking, they might need a wheelchair van, they might need a stretcher van, they might need uh, oxygen transport or an actual ambulance. They might, there, there's so many different things that you need to wonder. And when I first tried to put that through, they said, well, just give us the names of everybody that's going to the class at least three months early and what kind of transportation they need. And then we could spend the money on that. And I said, it's a training. I don't know who's going to show up. I don't know what kind of transportation they're going to need. And people are going to probably tell us last minute. So try to think of all those barriers. And I could go on for hours about this, this whole project, but it's really difficult. And, and some people kind of told me, Oh, well, if it's that difficult, just, just don't, you know, uh, don't try to have those people included. What? <laughs> don't, I was like, they said just, well, and I'm not saying just the County, I'm saying even friends and other people that just didn't really understand. They said, well, then just help, you know, train the people that are able to come. I said, that's, that's the whole point of this training is to bring it to people that it's right. normally this difficult to get them. If I'm actively trying to pay money that I actually got through a grant to be able to get people the right transportation and accessibility to come to a free training, to give them emergency preparedness kits all designed for them, and I'm still having this many, uh, these big barriers to, to get them at, it just fueled me more to say, then how else are they going to get any sort of preparedness? How are they going to understand what they need to do? And everything out there, for the most part, when you look it up, it's, it's all these one-size-fits-all preparedness, where you go to Gander Mountain or some sporting store, and it's just, here's your three-day kit. It doesn't really take into consideration what you need. It just says, this is good for everybody. It's got some food, some water, you know, a, a knife, a bag, and you know, you're, you're all good. Well, if that person who's blind doesn't have 
an extra backup cane to get around or doesn't have what's called a pen friend that can scan and figure out what numbers he needs to call in case of an emergency or go over his emergency plans. Well, that food and water doesn't really go too far. Same thing if, if you can't get out of the house or the building when it's on fire, and but you have a bunch of food, that doesn't really help you. Mm. So I really wanted to do a customized accessible preparedness where it's not one size fits all. It's, it's the, the fact of everybody's included and we're going to find a customized approach to your, your preparedness. How far did you get with that before um, the recent pandemic? Uh, I, I did it for the whole last year and was able to get six classes through and even trained some, some Brilliant. people as trainers. And I was actually supposed to talk in, uh, in the NACHO Emergency Preparedness Summit in Dallas, Texas back in March, and that didn't happen. <laughs> but uh, they pushed that to August, so I should hopefully either in August or another time in the future be able to give my training to a bunch of different emergency preparedness specialists across the country. And I did get awarded another grant for $6,500 to continue the project and help deliver more supplies to those people in need. So I've already actually had some people reach out to me saying that, that they, they're so glad that they took my class and they wish they would have taken some of the information a little bit more to heart and actually built more of their kit. But the stuff that they had in their kit has actually already helped them through this pandemic or being able to already have a plan in place. Even some simple stuff of just having a written out phone log of who they can call in an emergency in case their phone dies, uh, that they can call from somebody else's phone that, that they don't have uh, their access to just their, their cell phone that has everybody's number in it because who remembers numbers anymore? So having an actual written out emergency guide that's all you know laminated and put in your pocket so that if you're in uh, having an issue you can give that person a call uh, some people already actually had car accidents that that they said they had the you know this window breaking tool to be able to help somebody out or cut their seatbelt out just little things like that can really make a big difference and in that specific group I think it's it's a whole group of people that need additional or more specific preparations. And we're all going to fit into that group at one time or another. And you have to start preparing for it now. And when they live and breathe that, that disability that they have, uh, that they have every day, they have to understand, well, how does this, how does this, uh, possibly hinder my my survivability in an emergency and how can I make sure that I prepare for that with my disability in mind you don't want to just say oh I'll be fine I'm going to be good well if if your nurse's aide doesn't show up because they've got their own family to deal mm, with exactly. if you don't get transportation to you because the floodwaters are starting to rise if you get even if you do get to get evacuated to a shelter, if you don't have your wheelchair, if you don't have your, your equipment or your medication, how are you going to actually survive? So having, having these items so that you know that you can take care of yourself 
for at least up to that 72 hours, that three day period, it's huge in this group because for a lot of emergencies, those are the ones that are left behind because it's harder to get them out. Aaron, honestly, I, I've not heard anyone talk about this before. So I think what you're doing, you're an absolute champion for having the insight of the need and actually putting the time in to respond to the need now or previously so that in the situation they're, they're prepared to a much higher level. Maybe they're not as prepared as you would want them to be and they would want to be, but it's got to be a magnitude higher than they were before. You're, you're fantastic for doing that. that. That's really applaudable with what you've done, Aaron, so far. Thank you. Brilliant. That's, that's one area that just, hey, I, I live and breathe preparedness. I, I've loved it even before I was in the field. And, and I always look at how people can be able to help themselves more and more every day. And I, when I was, uh, I used to work on an ambulance and I, I was in the army doing medical work and everything. And I always was drawn to the worst day in people's lives <laughs> I want to be that person while you're having the worst day of your life that I can try to make it a little bit better. And if I have to have some sort of resource or guide or a little bit of knowledge to do that, I think it's always worthwhile for everybody to train and to prepare in that way. So you can, Hey, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, hopefully you have the right skills to make, uh, make somebody's day a little bit better. Brilliant. You have a great heart. And when I talk to people in this industry, it really is this, this mission heart driven motivation for people who are um, either recent graduates or they're looking to get into the sector of service. What would you say would be some good career advice from your experience? Well, like you just said, uh, you, you have to have a heart for it. You're not getting in it for the money. 100%. You're getting into it because you love what you do. You love helping people. If you don't love help, helping people, find a different career. So, is say that question again. Yeah, so career advice. What sort of experiences would you think that people should look to be involved in or specific training? Oh, yeah. So, there's a lot of different opportunities out there. Just volunteer. Just take the time to say, say, yes, I want to do that training. If they're looking for somebody and they're saying, oh, nobody wants to do this training, it's so boring, step up and take the training because you're, never, you're really never going to regret knowing more about different avenues. You never know when it's going to come into play. I think for the most part, the little things that I've learned here and there, whether it's going and taking a psychological first aid class and then eventually becoming a psychological first aid instructor, then you start learning a little bit more about the disaster mental health aspect of, of responses. And now I'm tied in with the disaster mental health uh, response team who I'm helping to become team leaders for contact tracing. And that all came from just nobody wanted to do a, a uh, psychological first aid class. So I jumped in, started taking it. People thought it was, oh, it's just a little feel good. I don't really think you need that but then now we're in the heart of it and people are on the phone with people going through a lot of really tough issues with COVID-19 and they have family members that have died they have people in the hospital that they can't contact or get any information about because they can't even go see them their father's dying and they can't go see them 
their son tried to commit suicide and now he's got COVID-19 and is on a ventilator. These are the kind of things that people are calling and telling people about and, and finding out while they're on the phone. And it's hitting our staff really hard mm. because an emergency response, you're not having just the best counselor on the phone with somebody. You're having people that, that work at, you know, as a clerk or somebody that works in rabies or food sanitation, whatever it might be. Those people are the ones responding to this emergency. We don't have enough people that are emergency minded. So they're not around death a lot. They're not around this kind of uh, sadness all the time. So hearing those stories has honestly been breaking people and trying to get in touch with those disaster mental health counselors was huge to have that as a resource for my staff, mm. as well as being able to talk with these people during the contact tracing. You think you're just calling to get information, but you're also there to, you're almost there as a counselor as well. You're the first person on the phone with them, telling them that they're exposed to a deadly disease or t telling them that they had a positive test. So you need to have that information in your back pocket to understand, hey, they're not really mad at me or, hey, how do I really listen to them? And instead of going through my checklist, I'm gonna lend a really uh, helpful ear, understand their problem, validate their feelings and help them to be a little bit more calm and see the world in a different light in this really tough time in their life. That's really valuable. Thank you. Aaron, after um, what must have been a long day, a long week and a long month doing 16 hour shifts, you've, you've done this for us and shared your experience and shared your wisdom and the, the projects that you're working on. Really want to thank you for your time and for your service for your county as well. Thank you. Anytime. Hope you have a great weekend. <laughs> you too. Thank you.